0: People have always looked to the stars for answers. Astrology is a big example of that. Lately, though, people have been looking to the stars for other answers. Answers about more than what our personal futures will hold. Answers about what our collective futures, as a human race, will hold. Today, we're going to explore humanity's foray into the final frontier, going boldly where few have gone
1: before. My name is Greta Bayliss, the Engineering One. And I'm Nancy McCarran, the art One. And you're listening to... The Renaissance Women, a podcast by curious people for curious people. With a little exploration and excitement, we'll be digging into various topics in science and art from the mouths of an aerospace engineering student and an art history student. Ignition sequence start. Six. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
0: That's not me. I bet you're wondering how not me got into this situation. Well, I'll tell you. It involves human computers, curtain makers, lingerie seamstresses, and yes, Nazis. we start our story in the heat of the second world war a gruesome and terrible time hitler and his evil cronies are looking for worse and more efficient ways to kill people he doesn't like and they land on rockets
1: naturally Wait, how do they go from guns and tanks to rockets science as flippant as that
0: sounds is the truth at the turn of the 20th century we were still making vast discoveries about chemistry shape of the atom, many elements on the periodic table, and the ability to turn gases into liquids were all being discovered at a rapid pace. As chemists experimented with their compounds and mixtures, the flammability of certain elements and compounds became increasingly interesting. It didn't take long for people to make the leap from flammability to fuel. Once that dive was made, it was simply a race to the finish line to weaponize it, simply because we were at war and When you're at war, it's imperative to weaponize things that have absolutely no business being weaponized. In 1935, Werner von Braun, a 23-year-old rocket scientist from Prussia, led a group to successfully fire two liquid-fueled rockets, something that was nearly unheard of at the time. This is not to say that liquid-fueled rockets were invented by von Braun, but that many liquid-fueled rockets of the time did not fare well against flight. If you'd like a nice and entertaining history of liquid-propelled rockets, I suggest Ignition by John D. Clark, one of the scientists employed to develop these fuels during the 20th century. As the war rolled around, von Braun was recruited to deliver military weapons, and deliver he did. In 1942, he produced the A4 missile. The missile took off, literally and figuratively, going almost 60 miles into the atmosphere. For reference, the definition of space is 100 kilometers into the atmosphere, which is, wait for it... miles into the air. Dude was 2.14 miles away from a full-on space launch. Eventually, they were renamed, presumably to instill more fear into allied hearts. Nancy, would
1: you like to tell us what these Nazis renamed the Beast? Vengeance Weapon 2. What I want to know is what happened to Vengeance Weapon 1. I don't know, but all
0: I can think is Vengeance Weapon 2. Two Vengeance, Two Weapon.
1: Two Vengeance, Two Weapon sounds like a terrible action sequel of a movie we didn't want in the first place, but got two of anyway.
0: <sighs> anyway, the V2, as it was known, was a huge leap in rocketry, going so fast that any city they would hit had no clue of their impending fates.
1: Do they have any specific cities in mind when making this? It seems pretty excessive to make a rocket bomb just to fire at random.
0: I'm not sure about why they were being manufactured, although they were reportedly a response to the Royal Air Force of Britain's barrage of assaults on Germany. The majority of the V2s launched over the course of the war landed in England, Belgium, and France. We do have to keep in mind that these were Nazis who were decidedly not against senseless violence. Von Braun's space story doesn't stop here, though. Instead of facing time for any of his numerous crimes, he was recruited by the U.S. government for Operation Paperclip, which was essentially a coalition of German scientists
1: that were hired to develop U.S. military technology. In the words of the great John Mullaney, quote, I hate these new Nazis, and you could quote me on that.
0: By the time this episode airs, Yancy may or may not be the proud owner of a mug that says that on it by the way she was browsing Amazon while we were writing this. Von Braun was rumored to have said that his rockets were perfect, save that they hit the wrong planet. Regardless of if you read his life story for yourself and feel any sort of deference for the man, which I do not, he expressed no remorse for his early actions, expressed no hesitation for his part in the slaughter, and faced no consequences for his percentage of casualties. Science without morals is not science, it is sadism. Well,
1: that's a big yikes for me if I ever said one.
0: Eventually, as nuclear weaponry is formed and the war comes to a close, tensions worsen between Russia and the U.S., culminating in the Cold War. Germany is under the occupation of too many countries, and Russia and America are essentially in a staring contest over Berlin. Who will blink first, only it goes on for decades. Then, something revolutionary happens. Something that will forever be linked with potatoes in my mind. Sputnik.
1: Get it? Sputnik. I'm pretty sure that was the first space pun I'd ever heard, and honestly, I'm not sorry. To be honest, I think if Billy Jill did Sweden start the fire, I'm probably the only one, but... No,
0: yours is definitely more normal. Sputnik was the first ever artificial satellite to hit orbit, and it was a massive win for the USSR. It was as though one minute space was entirely unexplored, and the next, Russia had eyes on the planet from another perspective. An outside one. Despite what pop culture may have you think, the space race did not start out as a trivial dispute between the two countries over bragging rights. It actually started out as an escalation of non-combative conflict. You see, Russia had also launched a rocket that was seemingly capable of sending a nuclear warhead directly at the US. That coupled with a satellite that could fly over the US? It stink of posturing. The US had to fight back with their own advancements And fast.
1: So how do we go from death rockets to suddenly wanting to see what lies beyond our atmosphere? Well, a lot of that had to do with strategy. Once people realized that we had the technology
0: to explore space, it became a race to see who could use it to their advantage. At least at first. When they moved on from simply trying to surveil the skies, they realized that whoever could go further first would be the ultimate power. Something that both Russia and the U.S. were obsessed with during the Cold War. At one point during 57, the Soviets also put a dog into space, but let her die up there because their technology relied on letting passengers parachute down to Earth. R.I.P. Laika, who the Soviets left to die in space as the cabin of Sputnik 2
1: overheated. What was it that I said about science and morals? Well, another one yikes a dust, I suppose.
0: The U.S. eventually returned fire. In 1958, Explorer 1, also a satellite, was launched. Guess who made this lovely piece of equipment, too? No, really. Yes. Yes. Werner von Braun. Fun fact this was also the same year that Eisenhower created the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, lovingly referred to as NASA. As a fun little fact for all of you listening from quarantine, as we are recording this in quarantine, Eisenhower also created an office called the National Reconnaissance Office, codenamed Corona. Ain't like, that just fun?
1: Uh. Irony is finest.
0: If I had to hazard a guess, I would say that the National Reconnaissance Office was named after the space definition of a corona, which is derived from a Latin word meaning crown and refers to the halo that surrounds luminous bodies in space like the sun or Captain Marvel. But that's just my guess. Anyway, in 1959, just a year after the launch of Explorer 1, the Soviets put Luna 2, their probe on the moon. We often think of aliens probing the people of Earth but not the people of Earth probing
1: the alien entities. The exit Files all over again, everyone. <laughs> Oops, wrong clip. Back to space. Ah, yes, space. Four.
0: Here's where it gets spicy. The Americans hadn't yet responded to the launch of Luna 2, and even though things were still in the works for the US, the USSR was a fast-moving machine when it came to space travel, and they sent Yuri Gagarin into space aboard Vostok 1 on April 15, 1961, better known as Tax Day in the US. Gagarin was the first man in space, spending 108 minutes up there, the only 108 minutes he would ever spend in space. He passed on March 27, 1968 due to a fatal MiG crash while training for a second mission. After the successful first man in space, the Americans finally got their butts into gear and sent Alan Shepard up into suborbital flight on May 5th, just a few weeks after Gagarin. Alan's flight got rescheduled twice due to weather because anything outside of the very small margin of error could spell disaster on a very large scale. Not something we want to mess
1: with while we're sending an actual living, breathing human being into space. So what's the, quote, margin of error for the weather in a space launch?
0: So that's actually a harder question than you might think. Uh, NASA publishes their guidelines for when the weather conditions are acceptable to launch in which include guidelines for humidity, wind speed, wind direction, temperature, duration of temperature, probability of lightning, type of clouds permissible, height of clouds permissible, temperature at which certain clouds are impermissible, and a plethora of other criteria that are detailed in excruciating precision by NASA. On top of that, there is also something called the good sense rule, which states, quote, even when constraints are not violated, if any other hazardous conditions exist, the launch weather officer will report the threat to the launch director. The launch director may hold at any time based on the instability of the weather." End quote. On top of the weather difficulty, Shepard experienced very little of his launch, flight, or return because so many of the things in the flight unaligned themselves for this. Except, the you know, flying. They put the windows in a very awkward place for viewing, the filter on the windows made everything look monochromatic, and his safety belts were strapped in so tightly that he couldn't even experience weightlessness. (laughs) Boo! (laughs) Can't even have any fun in space. (laughs) He's the first American in space and he comes back and they're like, so what'd you do in space? And he's like, nothing dude, I did nothing. (laughs) In June of 1963, Valentina Tereshkova was the first woman in space, spending more time in space than all other Americans with her one flight. Why wasn't this in my history classes? You know why. Valentina was aboard the Vostok 6 and spent 71 hours, or 48 orbits, during this go-round. Although it should be noted that she was alone in her craft, she was not alone in space at the time. No, not aliens. Valeri Biakovsky was in the Vostok 5 craft, and the two were in parallel orbits. They shared communications, but did not physically rendezvous. Valeri was actually in space for two whole days before Valentina launched, spending a total of 81 orbits, which was nearly five days alone in space. A record.
1: So they put two people up in space at the same time in separate ships for what reason?
0: For a few reasons. Valeri was in space to set a record of time, whiling away his days doing experiments. Valentina was there as the first woman in space, spending much of her time documenting the scenery and photographing things that would later be of scientific interest. Valentina's flight, which lasted longer than all of the other solo flights of Americans at the time combined, also marked the last of the Vostok line. At this point, I feel like I should explain what makes a Vostok, well, A Vostok. A Vostok is a type of spacecraft that has all remote controls, so that any adverse reactions to weightlessness or the force of being propelled into space that occurred didn't affect the success of the mission vis-a-vis death. Essentially, the thing was being piloted by ground control. They were terribly hefty in their design, with Vostok 1 massing out at 4,725 kilograms, and the Vostoks also did not have the same technology that American ships did for landing. Cosmonauts in the Vostok line had to parachute out at 7 kilometers, hence leaving the dog to die. The parachuting is actually how Tereshkova was discovered. She spent her time before space working in a textile factory and parachuting in her free time, which put her on the USSR's radar and made her exquisitely qualified for her job. On March 18, 1965, Oleski Lenov became the first man to walk in space. What I am certain was ten blissfully terrifying moments for Aleksey, as much as it was just straight-up terrifying for everyone on Earth. The Soviets, because their man was in space with only the suit to protect him, and the U.S., because they were beaten, once again. Three just like to take a moment to recognize the sheer audacity of human will and wit that it took to put things into space? There was no handbook on reaching low earth orbit, no mentors to guide the process, no experience to drive progress. There was just a dream and a bunch of people crazy enough to make it happen. Think about it this way. Nobody at this point had ever left earth. Ever. Any and all trajectory calculations, atmospheric assumptions, and necessary equipment were all theoretical. A line from the book First on the Moon by Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins sums it up pretty well. Quote, Go to the moon? Such an operation could not be planned with the exactitude out of experience. The experience did not exist, and there was no fleet of being made up of operational spacecraft. The reserve divisions that a chief of staff looks for when he makes his calculations existed only in the minds and persons and theories, some of them a little far out, of the technological and scientific elite which had come into its own during and following the Second World War. End quote. They were making the stuff up as they went, and yet, They succeeded. The kinds of subjects that take thousands of dollars in a five-plus-year degree plan to learn were made up on the spot by a group of people simply determined to get to the moon. Is that what I have to do to get into a good grad school? Invent astrodynamics again? One such example of this ingenuity is the dilemma of data memory. Regardless of how spoiled we are by the advancements of cloud computing, memory requires physical space. This was especially true back then when computers were the size of multiple refrigerators and generated enough heat for anyone near them to wish they were standing in a
1: refrigerator. It's a real Kingdom of the Crystal Skull kind of feeling.
0: I have a lot of opinions about that nuclear scene, but this is not the time nor the place. In any case, to put things into space, especially things that require computer controls, you must have an extraordinary amount of memory, right? Well, about 73 kilobytes worth. For reference, if you get the New York Times daily briefs, those take more than 73 kilobytes apiece. So, obviously, it is possible to have that much memory in a fairly small place, but it wasn't always. Memory for the Apollo missions was handcrafted, literally. Seamstresses were hired to sew together physical memory like an intricate embroidery piece, probably one of the most impactful pieces of embroidery in human history. Speaking of impactful embroidery, NASA was itching to find people that were extremely precise and skilled to stitch together parachutes and spacesuits. This was because, as I am sure you can imagine, lives were resting on the ability to keep people alive in both the vacuum of space and the descent back to Earth. Well, someone better get Betsy Ross on the line. Seeing as Betsy, or as I like to call her, Miss Ross, was unavailable at the time, the company chosen to design and stitch together the suits was Playtex, a company best known for its undergarment production, a business not necessarily typically associated with space suits, but definitely associated with bras. The story goes that NASA put out feelers to two separate companies, neither of them Playtex, to see who could design the better suit. Playtex got wind of the competition and essentially forced NASA to let them play, too, which led to a very long six weeks for their team. I know of very few people that would break into their own office to work off the clock, but that is exactly what these people did. And it paid off. Taking concepts from the softness and fluidity of drafting and designing women's shapewear and undergarments, rather than the rigidity of traditional engineering products, the team designed a suit that blew the people actually invited to the demonstration out of the water. Possibly literally, considering that astronauts currently practice using their suits underwater. It just goes to show that we really would be nowhere without women.
1: Playtex was like that foreign exchange student that just showed up in class one day and everyone was like, where did you come from and why are you so good? Another
0: level of innovation had to do with the parachutes, not necessarily in their construction, even though that had to be tailored to their use. Now, the true genius in the machinations involved with the parachutes was in the people packing them. What little I know about parachutes comes from the early days episode of NCIS where the parachute was packed wrong and the sailor died. Pretty sure that was McGee's first episode, but you can't quote me on that. Anyway. The people who packed the parachutes for the Apollo missions were specifically trained and certified individuals, of which only three existed. Their duties included packing parachutes, getting recertified by the FAA every six months, and never riding in the same vehicle together because they were too valuable to NASA to lose to a
1: singular accident. This sounds a lot like the line of succession.
0: It's definitely a designated survivor kind of situation, which was a great show for the first two seasons. It really went downhill after its Netflix takeover. I would be remiss if I did not include the efforts of Katherine Johnson and her team of brilliant women who calculated by hand the beautiful math that sent men to the moon. I couldn't even begin to do justice to her story, so if you'd like the full account, read the book, or watch the movie Hidden Figures, I cried, you will probably cry, it's amazing, and no, this was not sponsored. Back to the math. Katherine Johnson was a woman in a group of all black mathematicians who acted as computers before the technology for computers really existed. Even as IBM began producing computers, their very human counterparts were hard at work calculating launch trajectories and working out the orbital mechanics of space flight. Johnson was responsible for the sinking between the Apollo communications modules. Sadly, she passed away this year on February 24th, at the age of 101, but she left a legacy that many will admire for generations to come. Have you ever wondered why rocket ships look like they're on fire when they come back to Earth? Spoiler alert, it's because they are on fire. During re-entry into the atmosphere, the aircraft is going from a location with absolutely nothing around it, a vacuum, to a location with a lot of something, our atmosphere. Although we can't really see or feel them unless it's windy, there are molecules all around us. Molecules that, when abruptly encountered with a large piece of aircraft, generate a great deal of friction. The same thing that makes your hands heat up when you rub them together really fast. All of that friction creates heat, a lot of it, enough to start a fire with the proper amount of oxygen. Luckily for us, our atmosphere is partially oxygen, approximately 21%. One way that we can reduce friction is with a more aerodynamic shape. Unfortunately, this kind of shape during reentry does not allow for an adequate drop in velocity, which is important for not crashing. So, to slow down enough, the end of the aircraft is usually pretty blunt. Unfortunately, that can create enough heat to cook someone like a sardine in a can. So we had to find a way to
1: shield the interior of the craft from heat. We call this, wait for it, heat shielding. You know, whenever I think of something like heat shielding, I think of sci-fi movies, not Earth's atmosphere. Heat shielding is important in both science fiction
0: and science reality, because without either, the story would end terribly. The heat shielding in Apollo's missions was made using an epoxy. In order to make sure that every available place on the surface of the craft was covered, the engineers in charge made a honeycomb structure for the epoxy to sit in. They used fancy caulking guns to fill each honeycomb with delicate precision. Such precision that it took two weeks to learn how to use one of these guns and do this job. I know people who have literally flown planes on less. The heat shield was far from the only concern people had regarding human spaceflight. A concern that was specific to the Apollo missions was the presence of moon dust. Scientists were afraid that it was volatile enough to explode or catch fire when exposed to a pressurized and oxygen-rich environment. Much like the cabin of the aircraft the astronauts would be coming back on. A slight problem was that the astronauts would probably have it all over them when they stepped back into the aircraft. Their genius solution? To bring some on board and see if it caught fire. It did not, but it did smell a little charred, reported Buzz Aldrin, a bit like fireworks. One of the most iconic images in pop culture in recent history is the image of Buzz Aldrin saluting the American flag at Tranquility Base, the site of the first moon landing. The flag was a last minute touch on NASA's part to commemorate the culmination of years of fervent work To put people on the moon. As the photo circulated, people began to wonder if the entire thing was faked based simply on the fact that the flag was flying on a moon without an atmosphere. How could something fly without air? The answer is actually ridiculously simple. It isn't. It's suspended on a specially made curtain rigging system that allows it to look as though it's perpetually flying. Thought out by Jack Kinsler, whose mother made curtains when he was a child.
1: Well, there goes all my conspiracy theories.
0: The image that one conjures when thinking about men on the moon is inextricably linked to that flag, but also has nothing to do with the flag itself. The fact that to this day, something made by human hands remains in a place otherwise desolate and empty is a beautiful tribute to the tenacity of the human spirit to say, we can, we will, and we did. The flag that was... That flag was launched into space on July 16, 1969, and placed on the moon on July 20th by two extraordinary men who accomplished more than humanity ever thought possible. When they splashed down near Hawaii on July 24th, 1969, they returned heroes, not just to America, but to humanity. The plaque on the leg of the eagle, the lunar module that took these men to the surface of the moon simply states, here men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon July 1969 AD. We came in peace for all mankind.
1: Zero, all engine running. Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11.
0: Renaissance Women is made possible by Anchor. Special thanks to Yancey for the
1: lovely channel art and soundtrack. This episode was written and edited by Greta Bayless and graciously recorded by Zen Caster, who has made this possible for so many podcasters affected by quarantine.
0: Check us out on Instagram or Tumblr at RenWomenPodcast to connect, ask your burning questions, and fact check us. Stay safe and wash your hands, folks.